Well, this is a great season that we're in. What a joy it is to share this with you guys. And we are so thankful. Again, Jan and I have been reminded over and over again what a gift you guys are to us. And we are just so grateful that, you know, in the short time that we've actually been together, we've seen um, the Lord allow many interruptions and, and disruptions into even our lives. And of course, through uh, my own father's death and... Um, and some other things, as well as even a couple of weeks ago, we lost our favorite dog. And um, so just, it, it's just, we're so grateful actually, because we get to share this with you guys. And we just trust the Lord's timing and providence in, in these very difficult things, um, because we get to share it with what we consider to be, you know, family, truly church family. And so, um, yeah, it's not just provoked because of the season that we're in, we're just trusting how and why and when the Lord brought us here and brought you into our lives. And so I just wanted to say again, just before, before you, how thankful to the Lord I am for uh, the fact that he has brought us together. But besides that, I mean, I do love the season just for what it is. I, I love the reminders that we have before us. I, I love that we have to battle against what we in a, in a sense, in a real hyper way, what we battle against when it comes to really the whole year, constantly distracted by reasons to make this world heaven on earth, try to buffer this world with stuff and sentiment and nothing wrong with that in, in, in moderation, so to speak, as it's seen truly as a gift and nothing that we truly have to rely on. But it's also a season that reminds people of just how vacant those things are, how vacuous they are, how empty it really is to try to fill your life with things because what they are feeling so often is the loss of the things that were most important to them like family or friends that have died in the past year or so. Or it's just a reminder of the loss of that husband or that dad or that grandfather or grandmother, mom, son, daughter. And it could even be years and years ago, but the holidays just provoke this association. And we're reminded of a separation, something that was lost. And it seems to be most ripe at a time that should remind us also of our deepest hope, our deepest peace, our greatest joy, the, the most unconditional expression of love. So we're left with a fight. It's one of the things I love about Advent. It's a bit of a weekly, and if you're following along with the daily readings, a bit of a daily reminder to push back, not against all commercialism and all, you know, just decry everything out there. No, not, not necessarily that. More, more just the, the pull and the tug, the distraction to bring us in closer to what the world sees and how the world associates the season as opposed to what we remember this season to really be about. Because basically, if we, don't, if we don't remember the separation that is between the world, the lost world, and the Savior, and remember then the separation that we had from the Savior at one point in time, then we will miss out actually on a really great opportunity during a time of year when people are a bit open. Or at least it's a little more acceptable to say a couple of things. Now, Look, guys, I'm not saying at all that we shouldn't year round. You should be proclaiming the gospel all the time. Absolutely, using words, okay? 
Absolutely. But I'm just saying, thank you for that. For those of you who got that jab, some people know how much I hate the, you know, share the gospel and if you must use words, it's, it's colossally the dumbest Christian history statement ever made. Requires words. The word came, the word came in the flesh. Words are demanded. We should share that all the time. I get that. I'm just saying we have opportunity. For instance, with our Christmas Eve service that's coming up, it's a great opportunity to invite friends and family, any that would share a table with you perhaps on Christmas Eve. Come here for about 45, 50 minutes, and it will be a sweet time of proclamation, declaration, of singing, very, very focused on the person, the coming, and the purpose of his coming of Christ. They'll, they'll receive that. So I just want to encourage you that this idea of separation, I want you to remember how far you've come in the sense of how far he has brought you. I want you to remember what kind of progress that you've made in the faith even through a really difficult couple of years. I want you to remember the distance that's between your friends and family that are truly lost you know, as, it, as it's been said by some that, you know, Jesus Christ did not come to make good people better. He didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. Our world, I think, especially in the West, we want to, we mitigate this distance through some inherent goodness that we have. We don't like to use some of the phrases that are used in Scripture about the state, the spiritual condition of those without Christ because of what it sounds like. You're of your father, Satan. You go, well, I'm not a Satan worshiper. Yes, you are. Or yes, you were. We were without him. Completely devoid of any goodness at all. Romans 3 makes that clear. None righteous, no, not one. Not one. But we want to mitigate it. We want to make Christ this great teacher. That he can help us just be better versions of ourselves. But we must remember we are dead in our sins and trespasses. Dead. It, it actually doesn't even matter how a person dies, that distance is the same between life and death. Does, does it get any more magnanimous than that? The Grand Canyon doesn't represent it because you can at least see to the other side. There's no greater separation than life and death. And we are all born into that death. That is a deep, deep separation. It cannot be traversed. We don't like some of these terms because of how harsh they sound. But they are real. And they're not, you know, the scriptures really don't use hyperbole. Not really. I mean, at, 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 at worst, so to speak, there's metaphor just to represent some things. To give us an, a, a picture of things we might have seen in this world. Like separating your sin as far as the east is from the west. You know, if anything, when we, when we see these kind of descriptions, we know that, okay, that's like chasing your tail, or I don't even know how to kind of physiologically work through east from the west and beginning and ending and all that kind of stuff. The fact is, is that 
all the metaphors fall short of what the eternal truth is behind the metaphor. There's really no way we could, we could say it meanly, but there's no way we could possibly express verbally the distance that is between unsaved men and holy God. The Bible even speaks of us being not just at enmity, but being enemies of God. Look, there's people or there's representations along the way that you think of. You might think of a Hitler. You might think of a, um, boy, any, any number of, of, of terrorists, for instance, and, and really associate those as being enemies of God. But the fact is, is that we have to remember that being enemies of him, certainly there are terrible, more evil things that can be done in this world, but spiritually speaking, there's no greater distance between just the normal, unknown Western American who's apart from him and a jihadist who is absolutely wanting to see all of Western Christianity destroyed and there be a bloodbath. Spiritually speaking, there's no greater distance. It is no more of a miracle for Christ to save one of them than it is for him to save one of us. It still demanded the shed blood of Christ, which we'll observe in remembrance at the end of the service. Now, I'm, I'm not going to get into any more kind of shock therapy or anything. Man, I did it to myself again. So now I'm thinking about what about Bob and, and death therapy. And any of you who have seen the movie, you know what's going on in my head. Where there's these extreme measures that are taken to tr- and people just don't get it. It's like, oh, I don't, I get it. You're not really actually trying to blow me up or kill me. Um, you're just trying to help me be better. And actually, no, in that movie, if you've ever seen it, he's actually trying to kill Bob because Bob's really annoying. Sorry. But it actually kind of represents something there because the fact is we don't, we try to push off or ignore what's actually being said about us, what's actually being indicative. So for instance, if you've ever had a prodigal in your family, or if you've ever been the prodigal, you realize that behind the scenes, a lot of times, a lot later in life, a lot, a lot of times it happens much long, a longer period of time after you've already returned and come back you start to realize just how much went into you coming back home. How much a parent prayed for you or how much a, a grandmother prayed for you. A lot of work that was done to try to bring you back peacefully into fellowship with the family. And it's humbling. And you just don't realize how much has gone on. Or again, maybe you're that parent. You're doing all that work and it does no good for you to dangle it out in front of the prodigal child because you know they're just not going to realize just how far away they are. Guys, we have a great need to understand the distance of our separation. When the angels came to the shepherd in Luke chapter 2 and they said this, and this will be a sign for you, you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. First of all, all of a sudden this becomes a pretty big deal, right? Because it's not just one angel, then there's a multitude. And some big deals being made of this. But then there's something also though in the words that's helping the shepherds understand something about the nature of this one that's coming. It's for peace. There's a separation. They're just shepherds. They're just doing their job. He's about to awaken so many to understand how great the distance is between sinful man and holy God. 
That seems really innocuous for a child to come in a very obscure place. But there is power in what's being proclaimed by the angels here. Peace with whom he is well pleased. It's conditional. You know, we love at Christmas time on the sentiment to say, let's let, let there be peace with, uh, you know, with all men. That's not why Christ came. He came to bring peace with those with whom he is pleased. But what you then understand as the scriptures unfold is that that pleasure is derived only among those who actually believe in him. It's not because they're good in advance. It's because he saves them. He saves his own. He brings them to himself. He reconciles them to God. It's not the other way around. God doesn't need to be reconciled to us as if we deserve anything. We must be reconciled to him. Turn your Bibles over to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, it's page 1160 in your pew Bible if you don't have one. And again, if you don't have a, a Bible in your home, we have some on the back table that you can take with you. Now, before we dive into 11 through 22, let's go ahead and look at verses 1 through 10. He says, and you were dead in trespasses and sins. Okay, there's that separation. Completely dead, right? Not mostly dead, dead in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Boy, he's, he's putting in almost all of these distant metaphors. You're dead. You're a follower of Satan. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Look, even if you had a decent moral standard, even if you were just a kid when you came to Christ, the fact is, even if it was very well controlled and not really edgy and filled with vice, the fact is you still did what you wanted to do in opposition to what God was calling you to do in being forgiven of sin and following after him for his glory. Basically, you wanted credit for whatever was going on. He says, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Distance, separation. But God, and there's that interjection, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So you start to get the introduction of we have this great distance, but then it's, it's, we are brought near, but it's by a mediator. It's by something external. Something outside of us. But Christ showing mercy came in. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Christ did this. Christ came in. He raised us from the spiritual dead and then seated us with himself next to the Father. Peace among men with whom he is well pleased. How could he be well pleased with us who are dead in our trespasses? only on the basis of Jesus Christ, right? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And then you have that, you know, one of the earliest scripture memory verses that we memorize as kids. For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. It's not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So those who were the walking dead now have become those who walk in righteousness because Christ has raised them from that spiritual dead to be seated with him, pleased before the Father on the basis of Christ to do something that God planned for you to do in advance. All of it. To be saved, to serve him well, all of this done by the sheer mercy and grace of a sovereign God. But then we get to this part in verse 11. And I love that this flows out of what what we just read in, in 1 through 10. He says, therefore, as a result of this, remember this, that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, and Paul is speaking predominantly, not exclusively, but predominantly to Gentile believers. You were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. And I think Paul puts that in there, made in the flesh by hands, to show that it is not meant to ever have accomplished anything eternal or lasting. It was, he's not denigrating, he's not saying it had no purpose, because circumcision certainly did. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. And at this point, he's just talking about the horizontal relationships. You have no hope of everything that's going to come through the children of Israel. You have no hope in the covenant promises. You're hearing about them because they're preaching about them, but you had no hope in that. You were separated from this commonwealth. You didn't have a king because you weren't part of that kingdom, so to speak. But listen to how he plays this out. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace." And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Wow. Now, Paul wrote this while he was in prison in Rome. I want you to flip over to Acts chapter 21 just real quick. I think this context will will help us a bit as we go further. Look in verse 28. Now, as Paul's accusers have come before him, seeking to arrest him in the temple, it's where he's at. 
The accusers say this, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Now, whether or not Paul actually brought him into the temple, that's actually a bit of speculation. But here's what we know. In the Old Testament, okay, I'm not going to give you several references. But in the Old Testament, originally when the temple was established, even the tent, then basically there was a, there was a clear separation. It was between the, the priest and the laity. That's all there was. During Paul's day, however, new laws had been implemented. Okay, new structures had been put in place among the temple and its worship. And that basically included not just divisions between the priest and the lady. It was actually priests and Jews and then Gentiles and women. New divisions were established by the, by the time Paul comes into the frame. So keep that in mind when you start to hear some of the language of what, what these dividing walls of hostility are that are being broken down. But also what they represent. So in order to really understand this, I think, a little bit better, let's go ahead and talk about, as Jesus is the great peacemaker, we have to understand what he's saying in verses 11 through 13 on what it means for this great separation that is between us and a holy God. He says, first of all, I think in verse 11, he's he's saying basically, remember the fact that you were separated. Remember the fact of your separation. I think that's critical for us to understand the nature of Christ being the peacemaker and what, what is being made peaceful, so to speak, we have to understand a little bit about our separation. That's what he says in verse 11. So remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, look, in verses 1 through 10, he talked about this grand language of this separation between us and God. We are dead. I mean, he went to the extremes. Again, it's not hyperbole because it's actually real and true. But then he gets down to earthly separation. It seems a little odd. It almost seems backwards to talk about it in these terms. Like here's the grandest separation, but then here's a smaller separation between you and another race or another group of people. Yet that's what he does. But it's almost like he's saying, okay, in order for you to fully understand the nature of this separation, let's talk about what you have felt on a regular basis, generation after generation between you and the Jews. So you can more fully understand the nature of this separation. Okay, let's remember this then. Remember when you were separated? You Gentiles, you're always on the outside. And again, here they are. They're, they're in Ephesus, in the surrounding regions. They're worshiping God the Father with some other Jews who also acknowledge that Christ is the Messiah. They are together. But this isn't so far in the past they don't remember just how lesser of citizens they were in perspective. So as he gives this separation, he comes in closer and says, okay, let's think about this. You were separate from them, but here's the actuality of it. You were separated by by them, but in the flesh, by those that were called the uncircumcision, I'm sorry, you were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, because that was the dividing line that they were making. Because they were even allowing for there to be proselytes, those who were non-Jews who came into Jewish faith, 
But in order to do so, you had to be circumcised. If you remember, right, in the early church, there was an issue that was brought before the Jerusalem Council based on, should we require new converts to Christianity to still be circumcised? And every male that ever had a memory was saying, no, let's not do that. And by God's grace, they said, no, it's not necessary at all for that to be the practice because that would be a reminder of the law that Christ came and abolished. Now, as we remember this, he says, remember, you were separated. You were separated from what, though? He says, you were at that time separated from Christ. Yes. And you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, speaking really of earthly citizenship, the horizontal citizenship and relationship, that you were not only separated from Christ, but even the blessings that would be with the Christ, the Messiah. You weren't in line at least as far as you knew, to receive all the fulfilled promises, covenant promises that were to be kept, that were promised by the prophets of old, at least according to their understanding, according to what you were being told. You were strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope without God in the world. Remember your separation. Remember, that was visceral. They felt that. It was empty. And so what did they do? They would often then attach themselves to other gods. They would say, there's no hope for us, you know, unless we're going to go through the proselyte process, there's no hope for us to receive those promises. So they would often mix and mingle with other nations and other gods and and try to worship. Usually through some version of idolatry. But he mixes in here also the extent of this separation. To understand the nature and the fact of our separation, it helps us to understand just how far are we separated. Well, if you look at it, look at what he says in 12 and 13. He says, okay, you're separated from Christ himself, but I think verse 13 really captures it. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, I know that's a positive statement, but just jump down to the the phrase blood of Christ. That underscores what they're remembering as far as the nature of this separation. You felt like you were separated from the commonwealth of Israel. But please remember, what had to mitigate that separation between you and a holy God was the blood of Christ. To understand the nature of the cost of peace helps remind us of the nature of our separation. It's one of the things we're supposed to do at the Lord's table. is to remember that his body was broken for us. His blood was spilt for us. That wasn't some icing on the cake. It wasn't merely exemplary of living a life of self-sacrifice. It purchased our pardon. He redeemed us by himself. To understand that to bring peace cost Christ all reminds us of the extent and the fact of our separation. I mean, what is Paul trying to accomplish with this? If you go to Revelation and look at the churches that are addressed, the seven churches, you see that, that Ephesus, the church at Ephesus and the surrounding regions, they were known for their sound doctrine. But what were they known for lacking? Give me a response. But you've left what? That first love, right? Paul is provoking in them. In fact, if you go on to Ephesians 4 and he's talking about the nature of the church, 
he is establishing before the church to be, for them to be reminded of the depth of God's grace, which demands a reminder of God, of the separation we were from God and the nature of the peace that Christ had to bring for us to be okay with God. Grace provokes love in the body of Christ. Kindness leads to repentance. When you see the distance and the impossibility of you saving yourself, even if you're already saved, you need to go back and remember at times. I'm not saying unpack your sinful past, but I am saying you need to stop and remember, like we do at the Lord's table, what it costs for you to be at peace with God. And see if it doesn't provoke a sense of gratitude and appreciation yet again. We have to fight for this. And if we're not careful, the message of the world will creep in, especially around Christmas time, and we'll just feel like we deserve just something. We had no hope. We were dead. It was Christ's blood that made it necessary. But that's not where he stops. There is this positive transition that happens in 13, but then he begins to unpack it with, I think, what we can just simply call the great peacemaker himself, who is Christ. Verse 14, which I see is the crux of this text. For he himself is our peace. Christ himself. He's not relegating it only to Christ and his work. Christ himself, why? Because using Christ in this sense, and he's speaking to the Gentiles, starts to lean into Christ is the title of Jesus. Christ the Messiah is the title, the promised one. Before they knew his proper name to be Jesus, Yesu, long before that, that it was going to be a derivative of Joshua, they just knew it was the Christ. The Christ is to come. The Messiah is to come. And as he's speaking predominantly to Gentiles, he is speaking now of that bringing in process that they are enveloped into this promise that was made even back then to the Jews. He's starting to group them together and he really unpacks it here when he talks about the nature really of this peacemaking because it's really not only about making peace between Jew and Gentile. Ultimately, it's about making Jew and Gentile at peace with Christ, okay? But we need to see the value of both the great peacemaker in 14 through 18, first of all, we see that Christ is the peace in verse 14. He is the peace. He brought sinners to God. He brought Jews in with Gentiles. He's still a bit focused on the horizontal aspects here between Jew and Gentile, but he, he hints at the vertical. Now, he'll get exclusively to the vertical between ourselves as humans, whether Jew or Gentile, and himself and God. But right now, he's still mostly around this horizontal realm of Jew and Gentile because he's, he's still in that realm of saying this is the separation between you and Christ and if, if that doesn't quite grasp it for you remember this separation what it felt like between Jews and Gentiles now look you're worshiping with other Jews you're worshiping with other Gentiles why is that it's not because they were okay and now you've been brought in because he lowers the boom and says no it's because both of us needed him and that's, that's the unity. That's the peace that's been made. In fact, that's the real heart of what it means to have peace and reconciliation in this world amidst racism and our racial tensions, so on and so forth. He brought sinners to God. He brought Jews in with Gentiles. Christ is the one who accomplished this. He himself is our peace, but he did it through his nature and his work. Look in verse 15. How did he do it? He broke down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So it required him in his body and his blood to 
stand between holy God and sinful man, to bear the weight of God's punishment for sin, having already lived the life of perfection that God requires of men to be in his presence. Remember, the angel said, peace on earth among whom he is well pleased. And the only way for God to be pleased is for all sin to be punished, and that happened through Christ and his suffering. But also, it demands perfection. It demands perfect living, which Christ performed right out of the gate before he does anything public in ministry. He goes through the 40 days of temptation, yet without sin, even in attitude, even in whining about not having enough water. In every bit, Christ was without sin. You needed his perfect life to, be, to, to meet that standard of what the angels were announcing, as well as his death to bear the weight of God's wrath poured out on sin. He did that for us. So when we speak of the incarnation, we literally cannot separate it from the crucifixion as well as the resurrection. So he's done this. He abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So without getting into the weeds here, when he talks about abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, he is tying that all together ex explicitly between what the Jews were allowed to do and what Gentiles were not allowed to do. Because the next phrase kind of explains this. You don't need to know original languages or anything to really get this because of the context he puts it in. He says that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. This is critical for us to understand when it comes to reconciliation on pretty much any level. That in Christ, he is not merely creating a seat at the table for various ethnicities. We know that God is absolutely, it, there's the ta ethne, which is all ethnic groups. He is reaching through missions that he is going to draw to himself those who are from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And it's why we should embrace that. It's why we should embrace even the fact that God brings through immigration many people to our front doorsteps. He brings the world to us. We don't get to ignore the fact that there are people around the world hurting in need of Christ. We absolutely need to take that gospel to all. We should not be seeing lines based on color or ethnic groups or anything else like that. We should see people who are in need of Christ. But we should also rejoice when we do actually get to witness diversity come together in unity. Absolutely. But it's not for the sake of some kind of social movement. What we have to press into regularly is... May God absolutely bring any and all to himself. May I see all of my biases and my racism killed and destroyed because I want to continue to see him making this new ethnic group, this new man. He's breaking down these divisions that we see in the world and he's going to make for himself one new nation. But that's in the future. But what he says here, and it's where we go at the final point, is the provision of the church. So I want you to hear me say something because this, this kind of taps on this issue over and over again. I'm not going to be one who says, look, you know, the, the, what we really need to, to reconcile when it comes to racial reconciliation social justice, all that kind of stuff. We just simply need to share Jesus and people just need to come to Christ. That's of course absolutely true. That's the ultimate healing. 
please keep in mind that Paul's language here, even though I know Jew and Gentile, it's a little bit different, but the idea of reconciliation between two groups that were opposed, there's something on the way to reconciliation between us and God that is echoed in having reconciliation in relationships here on this earth. By no means can anyone ever be saved just by being happier with another race sitting next to them. I'm not saying that whatsoever. But what I am saying is that we should not ignore the fact that we need to address that there are racial divides, that there are ethnic divides, that there are divisions. Even in the church of God, we look down upon certain people or feel uncomfortable even for half a second with other people of different color or race or background or maybe, a, maybe um, uh, like socioeconomic kind of appearances. These are all addressed along the way, right? Scripture addresses these things. Not as if, no one is saying that's what leads to salvation. But I will say this, I think it's a cop-out to just say, oh, well, everyone just needs Jesus. Of course. But what do you think the world's watching and seeing? If we have the same racial divides the world does, why are they going to believe us that we need to be reconciled with someone else? We're fine just like we are. So again, this whole passage ultimately finds its resting place in sinners being reconciled to God and ultimately finds its resting place in the church finding unity in the reminder that we were all separated from God and we've all been brought near in Christ Jesus but it doesn't ignore the fact that they had to address that there was some false teaching about ordinances there was some false teaching about circumcision even in the middle of the church about what divides people and you know what I kind of liken that to? I'm not equating this perfectly. This isn't, this is a, an aside from kind of an exegetical aspect of the sermon, but I would liken this to those who say, well, you know, God's just kind of grouped people together. So we, everybody just needs to stay with their own group, the homogeneous principles and all this kind of stuff. People try to create biblical verses. They try to create that there was lost tribes of certain colors that were rejected They try to find scriptures that will allow and embolden their racism and their divisions. I think one of the things Paul is saying here is that if anything, we need to understand that our being reconciled with others that we have a divide with is a grand illustration. It is a worthy illustration and example of what it means of people who understand the nature and the depth of their separation from themselves and God. It is not the in pursuit, guys. I would never stand before you and say that. I would reject anyone that says that just, you know, racial reconciliation or some other kind of earthly reconciliation leads people to glory. No, and nor should it be the primary message. But when it does come up, even in hints related to contextual issues that we definitely have in our country, we at least have to touch on it to say it ought not be, especially among the church, especially with the church, because of where he goes. Because Christ, this great peacemaker, has led us to this point. He says that he might reconcile in verse 16 both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What was the hostility? Well, he's still on the horizontal, but he's leading into the vertical here between ourselves and God. He abolished the law of commandments. He's creating two 
that he wants them to be at peace, but their perspective of being at peace together is to understand it's not about being different races. We were both sinners and dead in need of a savior. And that's where unification will begin when it comes to the church itself, of us really being unified. We don't see each other from any kind of different background. We simply see each other as sinners who have been saved by God's grace. And we desire all men, all flesh everywhere to hear that message and to know the unity that we have in him. And that's where we were. And this is the unity. This is the only grounds of unity. Which brings up another aspect of the division that we just don't have time to get into. But how often do we see that people rally around lesser worldly common beliefs that are not about being resurrected in Christ? Political affinity or what have you. We've seen churches literally say, go somewhere else if you're going to wear a mask because you're not trusting Jesus. You don't have to search real far to see that. How could we let anything else bring division if we truly understand the separation between ourselves and a holy God and what it cost him to bring us together? Our unity should supersede any of those potential other rallying points. The weights begin to fall in their proper places. Do you know what that would do relationally? It causes you to take a deep breath and maybe be more brokenhearted over the lost position, disposition of a friend than angry at their political position. If we really are rallying around in unity, the fact that we were sinners, but we are now saved by his grace together. And he came and preached peace, verse 17, to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both, Gentile and Jew, he does not let the Jew off the hook here whatsoever, even though he's talking predominantly to Gentiles. He says the only way we, any of us have access to the Spirit, with the Spirit to the Father, is through Christ. That's the only access point. So just because a Jew is a Jew doesn't mean that they have access to the Father any more than the Gentiles did who were outside of these ordinances if they have not trusted that Christ is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, that his blood was shed, that his body was broken for them. It speaks of the exclusivity of the peacemaker Jesus. Basically, there is no peace other than through Christ. None. Because when the angels come and announce peace among men with those with whom he is well pleased, the only way he is pleased is through the body and blood of Christ on behalf of those who believe in him. And then verse 19. So this great peacemaker gives us a great provision and that's the church. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens He's talking about between each other, but now your fellow citizens together with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. In short, just keeping that based on the nature of their word, the prophetic word, what is being written about them, what is currently being displayed as the message of the gospel of reconciliation they're reading, even this letter itself. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, whole structure, 
being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. All this imagery in 19 through 22 speaks back to this idea of the temple. Ordinances were created by men and all these new divisions in the New Testament of the temple being divisive between priest and laity, non-Jews and women, whereas before it was priest and laity, which still is division, he now in this language is saying, we have Christ and we have us. And everything else has been broken down. He is now building a new structure. It's a new temple and that temple is you. Because there is no more priestly division because Christ has already gone into that holiest of holy places, which is the very presence of God. Not the inner place in the temple or the tabernacle before God himself. And now you are this structure, the church together, each one of you. This isn't about empowerment. This isn't about making them feel really great about themselves. But even the Gentiles being spoken of as being the bricks and the pieces that are establishing this temple, this Jewish language of the very dwelling place of God in the world, that's crazy. And I'm venturing to say that most of us in here are Greeks and, and Gentiles. He's building his dwelling place among men, among people. That people are the redeemed. Those redeemed are redeemed only through Christ and they become the church. And I believe he is saying so strongly here that if we do not better embrace that there is no separation between who we are and who others are, that when we gather together and we are around about together here to worship him, to proclaim his goodness out in the world and out into our city, that we have to understand we are unified on the basis of Christ. We are not different people. You know, this is why I get more upset about people calling themselves this kind of Christian or that kind of Christian because, you know, based on sin, okay? Or, or based on some kind of previous practices. We are being made into a new person, a new kingdom. We're being made into a new nation. And it's all about who Christ is. It's not about who we were. It's about who Christ is making us to be. So please remember the great separation between you and the Father. And if you need help with that, remember that maybe you felt separated from other people in your life. Maybe you have shown separation to others through racism or other ways. There is a divide. There's a separation. Have you ever felt that? Maybe there's a need to repent of that even this morning. Not because it's a sin that leads to hell, but simply because it could be indicative of the fact you haven't really understood the nature of your own sin and separation from God in Christ. Maybe you are already saved, but you need to remember that it's by his grace that he has saved you. You don't deserve anything. The fact that we have any inkling at all of being better than someone else based on any other basis or any basis shows that we don't understand grace because in it is this insidious belief that we deserve something that others don't. And again, that's not final, but it's indicative of what is final, our spiritual reconciliation to God the Father through Christ. Remember that great separation. Remember that Christ alone is the peacemaker for all. We should in the process seek to reconcile between races, but please make no mistake that as you seek and work hard to do that, and I think it's worth almost every effort 
to seek reconciliation and to seek justice, even socially where we can, without compromising our beliefs, just for the purpose of being able to speak into others' lives of what really should unify us, which is Christ and Christ alone. Because the work's not done then. You don't, you, the work's not done at a kumbaya moment when everybody sees different people rallying around for what purpose? Until we gather as a church, the great provision of God while we are in this world, while we are still different colors and different races and different nations, we have the opportunity to cry out, to scream out that we are unified only on the basis of Jesus Christ. Only on that basis and that basis alone. And in that sense, we are echoing what's going to happen in heaven. But guys, it's literally an uphill battle in this world because this is not home for us. So basically, if we are lazy about what reconciliation and peace looks like among men, I promise you the world is going to associate what they see on social media and every other version of media on what the church is like. And eventually, they're just going to see us as bigots. They can see me as foolish, They can see me as absolutely foolish because scripture says they would. But honestly, there's no reason for them to see me as a jerk. There's no reason for them to see me as a bigot or a racist. None. Oh, they can can call me all kinds of things because I say it's only through Christ. It's not through any other means that a person can be saved. But I would categorize that in the foolish realm because I'm saying that anybody from any race can know Christ. Remember your separation. Remember that Christ alone makes peace. And remember that until he takes us home, he's given us a provision in the church and we need to put forth the peacemaker and have peace and unity in our fellowship based on the fact that Christ has reconciled us. And we have to fight that uphill battle while we're in this world because it is worth it. Because it is not something the world understands. They don't get it. They don't get it. So I would ask you, is Christ your peace? I'm going to ask our men to come as we prepare to take the Lord's table together. Believers, I would ask you, do you have any earthly divisions or barriers between you and another? Do you? Ones that you believe you can reconcile. Remember, Paul said to, you know, as far as it concerns you to live at peace with all men. You can't control their responses. But you do need to ask yourself, is there a division that you could help reconcile between you and someone else, the horizontal aspect, because it is reflective of the vertical. If there is, I encourage you as you prepare to take the Lord's table to reconcile these things. Even if it's someone in this room. If it's someone you can't get in contact with even immediately, I would encourage you to still take the Lord's table if your heart is is willing to reconcile that and then to go make it right because that's part of the beauty of taking the Lord's table is the grace that's afforded in the moment that we are reminded that God saves even the sinner, the thieves on the cross the thief on the cross the idea here is that you have no unrepentant sin or sin that you're not willing to repent of examine yourself is there any earthly division between you someone else it might even be your spouse reconcile In a world with division and racial tensions, we have to remember that we should seek peace 
because it echoes of the peace that we have with God in Christ. It doesn't necessarily convey it, but it echoes it. Enough that if we speak of one reconciliation while ignoring the other, it oftentimes is just seen as hypocritical. Be reconciled to Christ. If you are here this morning and the season is starting to hit a little bit on how distant you are, and maybe the earthly relationships are the things that remind you. You're distant from family. You're distant from an ex. You're feeling a huge gap between you and someone or something else. And it's actually a reminder because it's an echo of things that are eternal. It's a reminder that maybe there is something separate between you and God. That division may be pushing you that you need to be reconciled to Christ. If you've never come to Christ, come to him now. I do not at all guarantee it will reconcile every earthly relationship you have. But I guarantee you he will forgive you. I guarantee you, you can fall in the category of those with whom he is well pleased, no matter what you've done, because of what he has done and who he is, not because of you. If you are experiencing that kind of separation and pain, let it remind you if you've never come to Christ, that that is what it's pointing you towards, that you need him. He's your only hope in the world. He is our peace. He's the means of peace. He's the one with whom peace is made. And he's the greatest joy and reward of that peace. God, I pray that even now as we begin to observe the Lord's table, to be reminded of your sacrifice that's been made, on behalf of those who believe, I pray that you would help us to see and know and to remember the separation that was between us and you, what it cost. To be grateful that you have reconciled, but also to be mindful that it should cause us to want to be reconciled with people in this world and to understand that you are in the process of making us a new people, all of us, all together, from all of our varied backgrounds. And Lord, may this even provoke in us thoughts about mission because there's literally no difference when it comes to those who are dead in sins and trespasses. There are different cultures. But Lord, may it provoke in us a desire to see any and all flesh. And even for those who aren't called to foreign missions, God, forgive us for thinking that because people are doing well and being well and, and our neighbors and we're just used to them, we need to ask ourselves, have we ever shared the gospel of peace with those that maybe we're just presuming are okay? And Lord, if we're honest, sometimes we presume they're okay because they just seem to be doing okay. God, forgive us, provoking us that all are separated apart from Christ. And that you are the only one that can bring peace. Only. So as we take this table even now, remind us of that distance that we had, the joy and the grace that you have made peace on our behalf, and that we seek to have no divisions between ourselves and others, ourselves and you, that we would repent of sin, that we'd reconcile broken relationships and see your glory manifest even more so in this place than it has been before. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.